We've been <clears throat> working through a series this summer called Building Blocks and following some of these banners you see on the wall here, Biblical Proclamation. We looked at that a few weeks ago, the importance of proclaiming the truth. You know, if you don't talk about the truth, people eventually think you just don't believe it. You tend to talk about the things you believe in. We looked at passionate worship, how it is our duty, our responsibility, but also our privilege to be able to give worship to the Lord because He is worthy of our praise. He's our Creator. He's our Father. And Jesus Christ is our Savior. And we looked at sincere prayer, the importance of spending time in prayer with God and speaking with Him. And then compassionate evangelism. We looked at this last week, and I, I want you to know the message this morning I think flows right out of this, this idea of being an ambassador for Christ. But as we're an ambassador for Christ, what does that look like? Well, it looks like discipleship and disciple-making. We'll talk about that more this morning and then looking forward to over the next few weeks as we finish this series up, looking at genuine love and selfless service. We'll get there very soon. The Lord's been good that we can make it this far, and I think it's been a helpful series for all of us. Last week, we had our Lego building competition come to uh, its end, and uh, the Cooper family, Luke Cooper, who made a pretty impressive rendition of me as a Lego, uh, they won the competition. And so we want to congratulate you guys this morning for all of that. That was a lot of fun last week. If you missed those, we tried to get pictures. Maybe we can put those on a slideshow so you can see those soon. So way to go, Luke and Zoe. Did you make the nursery, Zoe? Was that your part that you built over there on the side? What part did you help with? The cross in the front, all right. They did a good job, and it was pretty sharp. There were some pretty impressive builds out there last night. So big props to the Cooper family for all their work on that, and for everybody who worked, we had a lot of fun with that. We're going to take a moment right now and dismiss our boys and girls out for their junior church time. And as they go, uh, everyone else left in here, let's take our Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 this morning, looking at... A very familiar passage of Scripture. Before we get to our text, I want to ask you a few questions this morning. Some might say these are rhetorical questions, but I think it would help us if we would try to answer them out loud. So here's the first question. Does Jesus Christ still build His church? Yes, He does. Does He build it globally, nationally, regionally, and locally? Yes. yes. So here's the questions now I want you just to think about. Because if you try to give an answer, you might say a bunch of different things. Hopefully we'll answer some of these today. How does he build his church? He said he would, but how does he do it? Here's another question to think about. What would our church do 
if it was illegal to use social media, illegal to meet publicly, and illegal to proselytize publicly, would we cease to exist? Would we still be able to reach people with the gospel? Would we still be able to grow? What if, what if we didn't have any budget to pay for buildings and pastors' salaries? Whew. I'm not advocating for getting rid of our buildings. I'm not advocating that you fire me. But I am asking, what is really necessary to be able to experience the work of Christ building his church right here at Arise Baptist Church. And take it beyond that, to be involved in planting other churches around this city, to be involved in sending missionaries around the world. What does it take? What is required? I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have enjoyed here for several hundred, couple hundred years, over almost 250 years now here in the United States of America. But as you know, and you've heard it said, freedom is not free. In the same way your freedom in Christ was not free, you've been bought with a price. The Bible says, therefore, glorify God with your body and your spirit, which are God's. We belong to Him. It's not my body, my choice. It's His body because we're a living sacrifice to serve Him. Amen. My life is to be wholly given for Him. But what happens if... We lose some of the things that we've enjoyed. And, and here's another way to think about this. What if we don't lose those freedoms? This message is not meant to scare you. Because the reality is, I believe, that the way the Lord builds His church has never changed from the time that He began building it until this day. But the reality is, at different points in history, especially in our modern day in which we live. We have added a lot of other things, and we say, well, this is church, or this is how you build a church. It's amazing. You can go on Amazon right now and search on church growth, and you'll have so many books there available to purchase. You could never read them all, probably, in the rest of your life. Lots of ink has been spilt on this topic. Lots of conferences are held. Lots of conversation takes place. But take it back a step, because some of you may say, well, I'm not really interested in church growth. Well, what about yourself? What about the growth of your family? What about your own personal spiritual growth? You see, when it comes to this topic that we're going to look at today and the great commission that Christ has given us, we all have a vested interest in this. It's not just a, well, that's a pastor's concern because he needs to think about the church. It's not just the missionary's concern because they have to think about how to go be missionaries in a foreign country. It's not just the Sunday school teacher's concern or the youth pastor's concern. No, this is something that matters for every single one of us because when Jesus Christ left this earth before he ascended back to heaven, he gathered his disciples together and he commissioned them. He sent them out with a purpose. But you know, this wasn't the first time he had sent them out. In fact, you just go back a little bit in the time of Christ when he was here on this earth, and there was a point in his ministry when he gathered all of his disciples together, and the Bible tells us he sent them out two by two. 
And he said, don't take anything for your journey. Just take the clothes that you have on your back. Don't take money. Don't take food. And he said, just go and trust God to provide for your needs. And so they went everywhere, the Bible says, preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they came back incredibly excited and encouraged because of what God had done. Now, it's interesting when you look at the chronology of that situation, because it was right after they returned from that time of being sent out two by two that the story that we have recorded for us in the New Testament, the story of the feeding of the 5,000 takes place. Maybe you're familiar with this story. Jesus had gathered there on the hillside and all these people gathered around to hear him teach and preach. And we know there were at least 5,000 men there that day, but we imagine the number was actually great, much greater when you add in all the women and children there as well. And after Jesus had been teaching a long time, he knew that the people were going to be hungry. And he went to his disciples and he said, how much food do you have? And the disciples said, well, we don't have enough money to buy food for all of these people. But they said, we do have this one little boy's lunch. Remember the story, Jesus prayed and he broke the bread and he divided up the fish and they fed all the people that day. And the Bible says there was so much food that everybody had to eat all that they wanted and there were still 12 baskets full left over after he was done feeding the 5,000. Now what's interesting to me, there's a lot of interesting things about that story, but the point I want you to get this morning, that took place right after Jesus had just sent his disciples out by faith two by two. They had seen God provide for their food. He had, they had seen God provide for them financially. They had seen God do a great work in people's lives. But now they came back and all of a sudden it was sort of like all of that went out the window and they forgot they were with the Lord who had the ability to multiply this little boy's lunch and to make it so that it could feed thousands of people because in that moment they were stuck and they didn't know what to do. And I think the same could be said for our church today. We have the resources of the Almighty God at our disposal. And yet there are many believers today, many Christians, many churches today looking around, they say, we don't know what to do. My friends, the answer this morning is not that we need something new or we have to come up with something that's never been done before. No, the Lord laid out for us exactly what He wants us to do in His Word. It's not complicated, but it is difficult. Because the reality is there's no such thing as microwave Christianity. We live in a microwave culture, don't we? We want to be able to stick it in, put it in 10 seconds, and boom, pop, it's done. But that's not how your Christian life works. And the longer you live, the more you know that's true. Teenagers, you might look around at some of the old people here this morning, and I'm not using the term pejoratively, just that they think, you, we, you know, they think I'm old now, I know. But you might look around at some of the old people this morning and say, well, clearly they have it all figured out. You know, they know how to drive. Man, what a great thing to know how to drive. They own a house or they have an apartment. 
Boy, they, they can just go to the store whenever they want. What freedom to be able to go to the corner store and buy a big gulp whenever you want and drink it. Man, I wish. I can't wait to be a grown-up and have it all figured out. Can I pick on a couple of the senior members in the crew this morning? Brother Joe, do you have it all figured out? No, not yet. What's wrong, Brother Joe? You're down front. We need you to tell us how to do this. You're a little bit ahead of me. You have even less hair than I do, and you still haven't figured it out. I'm trying. No, doesn't have it figured out. And I... I love my parents, and they've been such a great example to me. But mom and dad, do you have it figured out yet? Everything. No. Do you still struggle? Yeah. Still have problems. From the youngest person here to the oldest person here, we all are on this walk, this spiritual walk of growing to become like Jesus Christ. I'm always encouraged every Sunday morning when I come in and Say hi to Miss May in the back back here. We, we have a good time together. She has so much joy in the Lord. But if you pulled her aside afterwards tonight or this morning and say, do you have it all figured out, Miss May? Is every day just one day further with the Lord and it's all good all the time? And she say, well, God's good all the time, but I'm not, right? <laughs> He's good, but I'm not because we're all growing. This morning, I want to remind us that we have the answer. We have the solution. But we have to go back to God's Word and be reminded of it. I'm a little nervous to preach this to you this morning at the risk of sounding overly repetitive because this is an area of, that we've talked about a lot. In fact, Peter Farber did a great job preaching on this on Wednesday night. So if I mess up too badly, Brother Peter, you can just turn my microphone off. He's in the bank running the sound today. Let's go back to the words of Jesus Christ here at the end of Matthew chapter 28. And let's read these together. Would you join me as we read them? Let's read them out loud. The Bible says, And Jesus came... And spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, the power for the work. Jesus came and He spoke here to His disciples. He's already died at this point. He's already risen again. He's already spent a number of days teaching and performing miracles and doing things with them now post-crucifixion and post-resurrection. And He's in that brief window of time, that 40-day period before He ascends back up into heaven. And He makes this statement, All power is given unto Me in heaven 
and in earth. Now, maybe you're familiar with this, but in our New Testament, there are, there's more than one word that's translated power. There's the power like we think of energy, something that has maybe explosive energy or energy to push something forward, but then there's also another word that's used for power, and that's the word that's used here, and that's the word that re references the power that comes with authority. You know, there's a slightly different nuance to those two terms. Energy and authority. You might look at a small child and say, wow, they have incredible power. Look at their legs. They just run and they never stop. They have so much power, so much energy. And that's wonderful to have. But this other kind of power that is referenced here is the power that comes with authority. The power that is able to speak and something gets done. The power that even with a look, somebody changes. And that small child who may have great physical energy and that kind of power, hopefully they also understand the power of authority when it comes to their parents. That mom or dad can look over with one look of their eye and all of a sudden they change their attitude. They change their actions did mom or dad have to go over there and do something? Did they have to expend any energy? No, but did they exert their power? Absolutely, because of their authority. Now, I'm so thankful that with our God, we serve a God who has unlimited power in both areas. He never slumbers or sleeps. His hand is not weak. His arm is not weak. He can reach out. He can do whatever He pleases whenever He wants. But he's not just a God of great energy, he's also a God of great authority. A God of great authority. And God's authority is over all things. And Christ here, as God in human flesh, he tells his disciples, he says, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. You see, Christ... He has the authority and He has the power to commission us for this work. Have you ever been asked to do a job by somebody that really didn't have the authority to ask you to do it? it this happens in our house sometimes. One sibling says, hey, you need to pick that up. I'm not picking that up. Why? Because you're not my mom. You don't have the authority to tell me what to do. And so what happens next? Well, mom said that you have to clean that up. What, did, what happened there? All of a sudden, they're invoking the authority of the parent to make sure that that work gets done. And what happens with the other child is being told what to do. Well, I don't think mom really said that. And so then you go back and there's a conversation. Mom, did you tell? Yes, I did. Okay, now I'll do it. What changed? Was the command different? No, it was the same command. It's who it came from, from a place of authority. I don't want to belabor this point, 
But if we don't get the fact of where our authority comes from, where our power comes from to be able to accomplish this work, where Christ's power comes from, because He is God, if we don't get that, we'll probably just fall flat on our back or we'll just quit and say, it's not even worth it. I can't do it. Why me? What do I have to? And we'll be just like that whiny child who doesn't want to obey and do it because who are you to tell me what to do? But my friends, this morning, the person that's commissioning us, that's commanding us, that's sending us to do this work is one who has the power to do it. You see, when we go as representatives, as ambassadors, we're not going to represent ourselves. When we go to make disciples, we're not going to make followers of ourselves. We're going to point people to Jesus. You see, if God is going to build His church, if Christ says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, then we can trust Him that He has the authority, He has the power to get it done. But it's easy to look in the mirror and say, but I can't. I don't know enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. And we have all kinds of excuses of why we cannot get this done. I'm too shy. I don't speak as well as somebody else. Have you ever taken some time to ponder who Jesus called to be his disciples? A bunch of fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot. I don't even have time to go in to describe who this man was and where he came from and all of his background. He was a revolutionary, a guy who was trying to fight against the government at every opportunity, perhaps even trained as an assassin. And Jesus says, follow me. And what did he say to all of these fishermen and tax collectors and all these different men? It was a ragtag bunch. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But there was something incredible in that statement when he said, follow me. When you study the history of that time period, in Israel especially, it was very common to have a rabbi or a teacher, a master, somebody who would instruct. Perhaps it was in the local synagogue or maybe somebody in a particular village. Some rabbis would travel from town to town and city to city and, and teach. And each rabbi would often have followers. People would come along, men who would say, Master, could I follow you? And when they would follow them, they would take on their lifestyle. They would take on their dress. They would take on their, what they ate. They would go with them where they went. They would talk like they talked. They tried to imitate their master, their teacher, their rabbi in every way that they could. But in those days, it was more common for somebody to come to a rabbi and say, can I follow you? And then he would decide whether or not he would let that person be a follower of his or not. It's pretty significant that Christ went and found people that were unlikely people, people that were not at the upper echelons of society and for the most case, were not maybe the best educated in most regards, but he looked at them and he said, follow me. I'm so thankful that he saw you where you were as the psalmist said, down in that miry pit, 
and he put you up and he planted your feet on the rock and he's established your goings. He's put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. I'm so thankful that he saves rotten sinners like you and like me. And he does that because he is God. And that God is the one who is commissioning us, sending us, to do this work. He has the power for the work. He has the power and we get to experience that power because we as believers have the Holy Spirit of God. We have the Holy Spirit in Acts 1.8. Jesus again speaking right before He ascends back into heaven. He says, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And I'm praising God today that when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit of God. It is the power of God that works in you and through you, through the person of the Holy Spirit, to accomplish the work that God has for us to do. So He's commissioned us. He has the power to do it, the authority to do it. He's given us His Holy Spirit, and He's also given us the Word of God. We have the Word of God. God didn't send you out without tools. He didn't send you out without ability. He didn't send you out without authority. He's given it all to you. I love what the scripture says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. He says, According as His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. He's given us everything we need. Isn't that incredible? You can go to your bank account this morning and say, I don't have everything I need there. You can go to work tomorrow and get, be given a job and say, I don't have everything to complete this job. You can give your child a job to clean at the house. And they say, I can't do it. But when it comes to the work that God has given us to do, He's given us all things that we need to accomplish this work. And He says, He's given us that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the, the corruption that is in this world through lust. Well, you read a verse like that and it sounds really up to date to the world that we live in. The corruption that's in this world, why? Through lust. Well, how do we deal with that? He says, beside this, giving diligence, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. And to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has the power and He's given it to us, the power for this work of discipleship. But He's also given us here in Matthew 28 the process, the process for this work. The processes are important, aren't they? First you do this, and then you do that. 
You ever try to cook a recipe and not follow the proper order of things? You'll come out with some pretty exciting science experiments there in your kitchen. But it won't be what you expected or intended. You ever try to build something? Put together some of that wonderful IKEA furniture without following those challenging picture directions? You get that in the wrong order, I've done that before, and you get the arm on the couch and then you realize I was supposed to be inside there attaching the leg and I can't do it so I have to take it all apart and start over again and work back in order just to follow the instructions. And God's given us the process for this work. But as he gives us the process, he's very careful here in verse number 19 to define this work for us. In verse 19, he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Now I know it's summertime, and you really don't want a grammar class this morning. So I won't spend too much time here, but in a sentence, you need to have a verb for that sentence to make sense. And in this sentence, the verb is teach all nations. That word teach is the verb. Now, you'll notice down in verse 20, the word teach is used again. But in the same way that there are two different words that we have for power, we also have two different words for teach. The first one used as a verb here is the same word that means to make followers of or imitators of, to make disciples of. In other words, this is somebody who's going to become your follower. This isn't just a student coming to class once in a while. No, this is like a child growing up in your home. It's very different, right? Teachers work really hard and I'm thankful for them. But at the end of the day, the teachers get to send the children home, right? And it's the parents' responsibility, not just for the few hours when they have them. It's the parents' responsibility all day, 24-7, to raise your children to the glory of God. And so there's teaching and there's teaching. There's making imitators or followers of Jesus Christ. That's the verb here. And then the second word used later on is teaching like instruction, giving you teaching like you would in a classroom kind of setting. So the verb here, we need to understand it well because this is what he's commanded us to do is to go and make disciples, make imitators of Jesus Christ. And we're going to get more into this tonight. I hope that you'll join us for this because there was so much. I wanted to do this in two parts. And so at 5 o'clock tonight, I'm going to give some of the hands and feet of this, how it plays out in real life. And if you have your notes, that's what's on the other side of the page. So I won't get to that this morning. You have to come back this evening for that. But in this process that he's given us to do, he's given us some simple steps. The first one, very clearly, he says, go. Go ye therefore. It's hard to make disciples if you're not willing to look outside of yourself and to see somebody. They might be living in your house. might be living across your street. They might be sitting in the cubicle next to you. 
They might be working down the line from you. They might be loading your truck. They might be putting your groceries in your car. They might be checking you out at the uh, grocery store. They might be in any number of places. But if you're not willing to look outside of yourself and to go in this process of making disciples, it will never take place. We are to be making followers of Jesus Christ, imitators of Christ. And we do this first as we go. Think about what Christ did in His time on the earth. He began to go from place to place. And as He went, He began to call people to be His disciples. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. He, he went all kinds of different places. He went to the seaside and found the fishermen there. He went down to the city where the, Matthew the tax collector was working. He said, come and follow me. He went all of these different places and he called people out to follow him. And if we're going to be disciple makers as Jesus was a disciple maker, and if we're going to point people to Jesus, it has to start with going. And that's kind of assumed, right? Like you can't do the rest of this if you're not willing to communicate with somebody else. But the second thing he tells us here, that jumping past the verb, after teach all nations, that's what we're commanded to do, he says baptizing. How do we make disciples? We do it as we're going, and then we're baptizing. Now, baptism in the New Testament was a public declaration of your faith. It's when you come up, and our baptistry, we've had to set it up and tear it down multiple times because of moving things around, but often it'll sit here. Sometimes it sits outside. The picture on the back wall is uh, Clayton being baptized outside by the tree, right? So we moved it around to different places to make it work for us. But that baptism is not when they accepted Christ as their Savior. It's their public declaration of their faith to tell everybody, I've been saved. So when Jesus is saying this here, and we know this because we have the whole rest of the Bible to back this up, He's not saying, oh, skip over that part where you trust Christ as your Savior. No, that's assumed because if you're being baptized, you are making that public declaration of your faith that you've received Christ Jesus as your Lord. So this is the evangelism portion of this disciple-making process, going and baptizing. As we lead people to Christ, then we lead them to take that step of obedience and baptism to make that public declaration of their faith. But then he gives us the next step in the beginning of verse 20 teaching teaching them to observe all things whatsoever i have commanded you now remember that first point about the authority the power for this work notice how that power is repeated throughout this entire great commission you see it there back in verse 19 you baptize them not in the name of your church, not in the name of the pastor, not in your own name. No, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Why? Because that's where the authority comes from. Why? Because that's where the gospel comes from. You never saved anybody. It's Jesus that saves. And it's the Holy Spirit that indwells that believer. You don't give them the power to live their Christian life. You can't work hard enough to live someone else's Christian life for them. And some of you have learned that in your life because you'd really like to be able to do it for somebody else. Well, I sure wish they would just do right. I wish I could just make that decision for them. But that's something that they must do 
in following God and trusting in Him. The Bible says the just shall walk by faith. So we see the power in verse 19, but then we also see that power repeated again in verse 20. He says, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Again, all of this flows right back to the Lord. The focus is not on us. The focus is on Him. So this process, we go, we baptize, and we teach. Notice what we are to teach, to observe all things. This is where the process of spiritual reproduction continues on. So it's, the Great Commission is more than just, hey, Brother Matt, let me, oh, I won't call you brother because you're not my brother yet. Hey, Matt, let me tell you about Jesus so you can trust Christ as your Savior and be saved. And Matt prays and he trusts Christ as Savior and he follows the Lord in baptism and, and he's now a believer in Jesus Christ. Now it's Brother Matt, but the Great Commission doesn't stop there. Now I got to go to that. I've only done the go and the baptize part. Now I got to go to the rest of it. Teach him to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Why? Because the reality is this Matt knows some people that I don't know. Matt can reach some people that I won't reach. Matt can minister to people that I won't ever get to minister to because God's put him in a different mission field than he's put me. We go to the same church and we have two different mission fields because when we leave this place, you're going to go see people this week that I won't see and I'll see people that you won't see. But you know, it's not just important for the continuation of our faith. It's also important for the continued sanctification that God wants to do in each and every one of our lives. Aren't you so thankful that when God saved you, He didn't just save you and said, all right, figure it out. You're on your own. We would think it a horrible thing to give birth to a child and then to abandon it. My friends, as believers, God has not called us to give birth and abandon babies. No, He said, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. That's a big process, isn't it? That probably takes a lot of time. How long does it take someone to learn all things that God's commanded them? Joe, have you learned them all yet? No, He's still going. But Matt, have you learned them all yet? No, I'm still learning. I am still learning. So understand when it comes to this patient discipleship, it requires great patience, doesn't it? Because it takes a long time. In fact, it'll take you the rest of your life. Because only when we see Him will we be able to be fully like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. But that doesn't mean that in this life He's just put us here to sit and to soak and to sour. No, He's put us here to be conformed or changed into the image of Jesus Christ. So we see the process for the work. But notice next He gives us a great promise. It's at the end of verse 20. There's a great promise for the work. He says, And lo, I am with you Always, even unto the end of the world. I see here a promise of God's presence. Isn't it so encouraging to know He didn't just commission us and give us the authority that He has? Say, go do this. 
He says, go, and I'm coming with you. And isn't it encouraging to feel like, man, sometimes you're standing there and you're looking at that big old giant in the face and you think, I don't know what to do. And then all of a sudden you glance over your shoulder and you realize God's right there with you the whole time. Remember that story in the Old Testament when the prophet of God went down to this city and he was helping the people of God to fight against the enemies. And the enemies didn't like it because the prophet kept telling the king where the enemy was going to be before the enemy got there. And they thought, man, we've got a spy, and they figured out who it was. It was this prophet of God. And so the enemy army came, and they surrounded this whole city. I mean, this was a big army and a little town surrounded by this army. And the Bible tells us that the servant of the prophet got up that morning, and he walked outside, and he looked, and he saw... <laughs> the whole city surrounded by this enemy army. And he ran back in. He was so afraid, like we are sometimes. And the prophet of God came out and he said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And the Bible says that God opened his eyes, gave him sight to see, and he looked out and he saw angels surrounding the enemy army. They had nowhere to go. And so the prophet of God prayed and God smote that enemy army with blindness. And then they were just led away. It was like nothing at all. The Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Yes, he's given us the authority. He's sent us to do it. He's given us the process. He says, go, and here's how to go, and here's how to go about it. But he's given us a great promise that he's with us always. I see a promise of his presence and also the promise of God's patience even unto the end of the world. Because think about this. How long is it going to take you to learn all the things that you're supposed to learn? A long time. Aren't you thankful that God's patient with you this morning? I mean, we look around, I know. Well, I sure hope God's patient enough with them. Look yourself in the mirror and say, praise God that He's patient with me. <laughs> It's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my father, not my mother, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Oh, it's easy to come to church and say, boy, I don't know where they are. I wish they'd be faithful. Oh, I don't know what their problem is. Listen, you have enough problems. My wife always says, if you'll do a good job of taking care of yourself and walking with the Lord, then you'll be able to help somebody else. Hey, deal with the beam in your own eye first before you try to take the moat out of somebody else's eye. But he's promised us that he's be with us even to the end of the world. He's patient. He's patient. But I also see here a warning. There's a warning about this work. I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. In that great promise, there's also a warning about the reality of this work. He's not telling us to be afraid. I think he's just helping us to understand this is not going to be easy. Why? Because there's a great length to this work. All of us wish we could just tell somebody what the Bible says one time and they would just figure it out and do it and never need any more encouragement. 
Don't you just wish you could just read the Bible one time? You would just know it all? You wouldn't need any more? You know, we might think that, but the reality is if we lived that way, we would not be living by faith. It wouldn't be a relationship with God anymore. It'd be all about me instead of all about Him. God didn't make you that way that, to have that ability to just read and know it all one time. And He did that on purpose, and it wasn't because He was mean. It's because He wants a relationship with you. Remember when He made Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? He just wanted to be able to come down in the evening and walk and talk with them. I mean, think about it. What, what grandparent doesn't want to just spend time with their grandkids? If they're a loving grandparent, they do. Our Father just wants to spend time with us, too. So He helps us to understand this work. It's going to take a long time. And I want to encourage you on this because it's easy to look around and get discouraged. Because you think, well, why aren't they changing faster? Why am I not changing faster? Why don't more people get it? What's wrong with everybody? The same thing that's wrong with everybody. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's a great length in this work, but there's also a great sacrifice. Great sacrifice. I often think that the Word of God uses the example of a family a lot to help us understand this process. That's why he talks about fathers and mothers and children, not just because he wants to instruct us in our own family units at home, but help us to visualize and to understand this concept. Hey, parents, when you had your child, if you didn't realize it then, you realize it now. There's a, a great length to the work. We have parents in here this morning that are in their 80s. And you know what? They're not done being parents yet. I realize their relationship with their children has changed some in that time period. But they're still mama, still daddy. And those will always be their babies. Even though, hopefully, those babies have grown a little bit. But there's a great length to the work. And every parent knows there's a great sacrifice in that work. It's not easy. Late nights, early mornings, giving up what you'd like to have to take care of the needs of somebody else. You know what? The work of making disciples is no different. Listen, my friends, if we're going to do this work that God has put us here to do, this isn't something that I can do by myself. And it's definitely not something you can do by yourself. You can't disciple everybody. You can only disciple a few. Think about it. Even Jesus only discipled a few. But yet those few that he discipled, the Bible tells us, went out and they turned the world upside down. 
You see, this model that he gives us here in Matthew 28, this is not a church growth model. Rather, it's a model for making disciples. But what's really interesting, you just follow this on into the book of Acts, if you'll do what God has called you to do, He'll be faithful to do what He's going to do. And let me rephrase that because it sounds contingent, like that God's not going to do what He's going to do without you. God's going to do what He's going to do with or without you. But if you want to be a part of what God is doing, if you want to experience the joy and experience the power of God at work through you, then get involved in the work that He's given us to do. Because the reality is it may cost you everything. It cost Jesus his life. It cost Paul his life. You go through these early disciples of Christ, most of them lost their lives in this process. But did they really lose their life or did they gain eternity? How can you lose your life when it's eternal? How can you lose out on this world's goods when your riches are in heaven? When you didn't lay up treasure on this earth, you were laying up treasure with Him. God's promise to be with us. This is where God works. This is where He is present, is in this work that He's given us to do. I think there are many Christians today that don't get to experience that abiding presence of God in their life because they're so busy about all these other things. And God wants us to point people to Jesus because as you point people to Jesus, you have to walk with Jesus yourself. You have to live it out yourself. One of the greatest spiritual growth things you can ever do in your own life is try to teach somebody else how to follow Christ. You know it, Mom. You know it, Dad. How did you learn how to take care of a child? Well, I was a babysitter. I did it. Yes, but then when you had your own, you went to a whole different school, didn't you? But the same thing's true spiritually, and we often get afraid of that school. Well, I'll just have my own private discipleship. It's just me. God didn't put you in this life to live your Christian life alone. Well, it's me and God, yes, but He's also commanded us to bring others with us as we follow Christ. Yes. Iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. Jesus didn't just carry out His earthly ministry, going around and performing miracles with a, with a staff behind Him. No, he, he made disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. He didn't just preach messages. He slept where his disciples slept. He ate where his disciples ate. He went where they went. Remember, Jesus even said, foxes have holes and birds have nests. But he said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why would Jesus, the Almighty God of the universe, live like that? Because Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to tell people of his Father, and he knew that the best way to do that was to spend time with people and to teach them through his actions, through his words, through everything he did to become followers of God themselves. 
And the reason you'd know it worked is because when he was gone, it carried on. Here's the thing, and I'll say this and be done. I believe the greatest legacy that a person can leave when they're gone from this life is that the work, the family, the ministry, whatever it is that they were involved in, that that work carries on when they're gone. Because our life's a vapor. It's here for a time and goes away. I mean, think about it. Mom, you want your kids to love you and spend time with you, but you know someday you'll be gone and you really want them to carry on after you're no longer there. I mean, every parent wants their child to love them, but what parent would say, well, I only want them to love me while I'm here, and when I'm gone, they can go do whatever they want. It doesn't matter anymore. No. You'd almost say in some ways it matters even more because it shows that what you did actually had value because it lived beyond you. And when you get involved in this patient discipleship, of your own walk with the Lord and then leading others to walk with the Lord with you, you are doing something that will live far beyond your lifetime. You'll do something that's valuable with your life. You'll make your life count for Christ, yes, but also in the life of somebody else. In the final book of the Bible, we are left with some words from Jesus Christ himself in Revelation 2, 1 through 5. And he says this, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast labored and, and has found them liars and has borne and has patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Now here's an interesting connection. If you go into the book of Ephesians, and he's now writing to the angel of the church of Ephesus. This is the, the pastor there of this church. The command to the pastor in the book of Ephesians is, he says he gave some apostles and some uh, prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So he gave the pastor the job of equipping the saints, perfecting them, giving them tools needed to be able to point other people to Christ, to do the work of the ministry, to make disciples. And I believe here he's giving a warning to that same church, that church at Ephesus, because they forgot their first love. The church at Ephesus grew. If you go back to Paul's time with this church when it was first being started, it's Paul meeting with this group, this handful of 12 men. It's right there in the book of Acts. 
He finds these 12 men who didn't know Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. He shares the gospel with them. They trust Christ. They receive the Holy Spirit of God. He spends time with them, daily with them in the school of Tyrannus. Then they send out the entire city of Ephesus is turned upside down for the gospel. People are burning their idols. They're getting rid of their magic books. They're, they're getting right with God. And there's a great revival that sweeps over this entire city. God blessed the church at Ephesus. And this church, though, over time, they were still doing good works. They were still standing for the truth. They were still preaching what was right. They were still living right and making sure false teachers didn't creep in. But they forgot their first love. The way the church at Ephesus was started is the same way that God wanted it to continue through the process of patient discipleship. And I believe in the same way, Arise Baptist Church, if we're started through the work of making disciples, through the work of Jesus Christ building His church, then the way we will continue and the way we will continue to do the work that God's put us here is by being faithful to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you once again to join me in that process. To join me first by repenting and saying, Lord, there's something in my life that I've allowed to distract and keep me from what God has called me to do in making disciples. I want to confess it and make it right with you. And then, Lord, if you'll show me something that I need to add or subtract from my life that would help me to be back at the mission that you've given me to do, then, Lord, that's what I want to do. And so in just a moment, we're going to bow our heads and close our eyes. I'll invite you to stand to your feet. And those who say, I want to do that, I need to repent, or I want to do whatever God wants me to do in this area, maybe God's laid something specific on your heart. Maybe it's a specific person. It often starts with one person, like Eugene, that you're going to pray for. Say, I'm going to pray till they trust Christ. Or it starts as somebody else. Maybe you look around this room and say, there's somebody here I don't really know. I don't know where their walk with the Lord is. Maybe I could help them walk with Christ. Maybe it's your neighbor, somebody that's not here. But if God's laid somebody in your heart, I'm going to invite you to come and to pray. And then I'm going to ask you, if you're able, to be back tonight. And I want to go through some practical things that we're doing, that we have been doing, and we will continue doing some new things we're trying to do as a church to be faithful about this work that God has given us to do. Would you join me? Father, help us now to follow you. The old song says, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. May we follow you, Lord, this is a daily thing. Dying to ourselves, taking up our cross and following you. Lord, help us today as we've heard a message that for many is perhaps familiar. For others, it's a new challenge. Lord, we're so thankful we don't go into this alone. You've promised to go with us, to lead us, to never forsake us. Lord, you've promised that your word would not return void. You've promised that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Lord, it's for all. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, help us now to commit to go, to follow to obey. And Lord, maybe there's somebody here this morning who needs to take that first step of obedience and trust you as their Savior and call upon you 
in faith, confessing their sins and trust that you can save them. Lord, help them to know if they'll call upon you, you'll never cast them out, that they will be saved today. Lord, bless all that's done now. In Jesus' name I pray.